Father, I pray that in my preaching you will fill the gaps of my deficiencies and help it to be a demonstration of the power of God. As we dive deep into your perfect and precious word, help us come up clinging to promises. Before me, I have mature Christians and infant Christians. Help me to serve meat and milk that both will leave sustained and fed. There are before me those who are convinced they are Christians and they are not. There are before me those who are Christians yet aren't fully convinced of it. Both goats disguised as sheep and sheep going around doubting their sheepness. I've got what both need to eat. The gospel. Help me to preach this gospel as beautiful because it is. Help me to preach it as convicting because it is. Help me to preach it as irresistible because it is. What I am asking is above my abilities but not above your spirit. What I am asking is that I would not be the preacher today. Your spirit would. Will he preach this text to us clearly? As I labor, help me not to labor in the flesh. Help me to point the confused sheep to the right path. The straying sheep to the rod of discipline. The crying sheep to the balm of Gilead. The worried sheep to the sovereign control of the great shepherd. May we all leave this place with confidence because we sinning lambs have found forgiveness in the sacrificial lamb. Our souls have many needs. This text teaches many truths. May the truths be applied to the needs. Work them deep into our souls where they become part of our DNA and we start to live them out. This is our corporate plea. Amen. Zeba, Shimei, Hushai, and Ahithophel. Wonderful names for those of you expecting a child, which is always about 25% of our church. These names may seem foreign to you, but they were on the top 10 baby names in 900 B.C. My seminary profs used to say, title your sermon something that is catchy and memorable. So I did. Zeba, Shimei, Hushai, and Ahithophel. I'm not looking for the title to rock your world. I'm looking for the exposition to rock your world. I intend for you to see Zeba, Shimei, Hushai, and Ahithophel, but above all, I intend for you to see Christ and to see him clearly. Last week, in the previous exposition, last week we, we left David, and he had been ousted as Israel's king. His own son Absalom led the coup to overtake the throne. David had to leave the capital and declare it an open city. That's where we pick up the story today. 
David leaving Jerusalem, verses 1 through 14. Absalom entering Jerusalem, verses 15 through 23. You will find out that David's walk away from Jerusalem is crazy similar to your walk through life. I, I will not moralize this text. I am not saying be like David. But I am saying what David faced is what you and I face. The schemes of Satan have not changed. He uses the same tactics to discourage the people of God and the same tactics to tempt the people of God. The same Satan attempting to destroy David in this passage is the same Satan that is attempting to destroy you. We will see the, the weapons of Satan laid bare in the text. This narrative shows us David walking with God while hurt and wounded. Because sometimes we have to walk through life hurt and wounded. As we see David leaving Jerusalem and Absalom entering Jerusalem, we are going to learn a lot about ourselves and a lot about our God. Whenever I study a text, I always ask the text two questions. What do you teach me about God? What do you teach me about my fallenness? We're going to answer both of those questions today. So let's get after it. Verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, that's the summit on the Mount of Olives, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisin, raisins, 100 baskets, there's a thought here, 100 baskets of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. It's a, a band of displaced refugees. David is, is traveling with his team of warriors, their wives and children. David also has his family. He, he's pushing 70, barefoot, betrayed, and barely making it. They are all overcome with fatigue, physically exhausted, emotionally drained, but not spiritually bankrupt. They are down, but not out. Hurting, but not cursing God. Famished physically, but not spiritually. They are walking with faith in their wilderness journey. This buffet in the desert is a welcome sight to growling bellies. They didn't happen to run up on this restaurant by chance. Zeba was waiting for them, having spread a table in the wilderness. Zeba, do you remember him? David wanted to find someone from the house of Saul whom he could show kindness to. He found a cripple, Mephibosheth. Instead of killing him, David brought him to his table, gave him a big ranch, a giant farm. David commanded Zeba to farm the land as a custodial manager for Mephibosheth. Remember, I illustrated Mephibosheth. I got on the floor. Some of you thought I lost my salvation with that illustration. I assure you I didn't. I'm still in the faith. Mephibosheth became like a son to David. Well, that isn't saying a whole lot. David had some terrible sons. Mephibosheth was like the son David always wanted. Loyal, grateful, godly. And he always had a chair at the king's table. Anyway, Ziba managed Mephibosheth's large estate. 
In verse 1, Ziba brings gifts, resources to David. He brought animals for transportation. Hey, hey, King, King David, climb up on this donkey. Your feet are bleeding. A king with bloody feet. Animals for transportation and food for consumption. There's an obvious absence in the list here of meat, which was deliberate. It would have spoiled. Verse 2, And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? David is probably expecting this answer from Ziba. Probably expecting Ziba to respond, Mephibosheth wanted to come, but he couldn't make it because of his crippled legs. But, but he wants you to know that he loves you and he's praying for you and he's confident that God will bring you through this. But that's not what Ziba said. Verse 3b. Ziba said to the king, Behold, Mephibosheth remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will be given... Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. David's heart sank. You, you've got to be kidding me. My adopted son betrays me just like my biological son? Will someone please pull the knife out of David's back? This is how you, you return my kindness? I brought you out of hiding. I, I made you an ancient millionaire. I, I, I brought you into my family. Ziba informs David that Mephibosheth is using this opportunity to reassert his claims to the house of Saul, the, from the house of Saul to the throne. So he's now contesting Saul's house wasn't permanently rejected, but temporarily punished. He thinks God could use this uproar in the kingdom to make him king. Mephibosheth is ungrateful, he's disloyal, and he has his own political ambitions in mind. According to Ziba, King David, Mephibosheth didn't repay your kindness with loyalty. But I just did. Here's 20 grocery carts full of food. Verse 4. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. This accusation against Mephibosheth is impossible to verify. David can't get back into Jerusalem to investigate the merits of this claim. Nor does he even bother. David speaks rashly and makes a snap decision. All that Mephibosheth had is now yours. He believes Ziba without further inquiry. He, he's discouraged and his judgment is off. There, there are holes in this story, but he's so hurt he can't see them. I'm going to glean truths throughout this exposition, and this is the first. When you are weak and deeply wounded within, it's no time to make rash decisions. When you are weak and deeply wounded within, it's no time to make rash decisions. Making decisions when discouraged is a recipe for disaster. We must be biblically controlled in our assessments. David wasn't. Beware of making decisions, church, when you're not on your game. 
Zeba, of course, loves the decision. <laughs> he just became a millionaire. Oh, king, how could I ever thank you enough? Church, allow me to insert here. There is no corroborating evidence that Mephibosheth ever said what Zeba testified that he said. Zeba's motives are unclear, but he seems to be attempting to curry favor with the king, being duplicitous, playing both sides, King David and King Absalom. Notice, he doesn't offer to go into exile with David. He doesn't join David in his humiliation. He just wanted to be in David's favor in case David once again rose to power. Zeba tells David a brazen lie. A bold-faced lie. He's attempting to. No, no, he's succeeding in ingratiating himself to King David at the expense of Mephibosheth. He's discrediting Mephibosheth in order to take over his property. All of this is walked out later in the book. Chapter 19 proves Zeba was not sincere. We, unlike David, have the luxury of reading ahead. The fact that Mephibosheth did not betray David is known to us, but not to David. He was deceived. He accepted this pathetic story at face value. He chooses to side with Ziba. He's weak and emotionally wounded within, and he makes a rash decision that he will later regret. Our world swarms with Zebas. Don't be one. You must avoid polite forms of manipulation. Flattery in all forms is evil. It is sin. Sheer deceit. Christians are to avoid it like the plague that it is. You must die to the temptation to butter people up for some supposed advantage. It's the disease of Zebaism, And you aren't immune to it. Don't contract Zebaism and don't fall prey to Zeba's flattery. David got Zebud. Don't you get Zebud? But, but Kyle, through Zeba's deception, God's king and his followers were nourished. Yes. And it's here we glean another truth. God sometimes uses wicked people for the praise and assistance of his children. God sometimes uses wicked people for the praise and assistance of his children. David and Ziba say their goodbyes, shake hands, and walk in opposite directions. David and his crew, these nomads, they head northeast. These refugees are now fed and they have energy to move again. They're on the move in verse 5. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came... He cursed continually. David is now in Benjamite territory. He's in Saul country. One of Saul's relatives approaches David's entourage. He begins hurling insults. Evidently, he's long nursed his hatred toward David. Like a, a volcano that spews hot lava, this man spews hot hatred. He's a seething reviler. There's depth to his anger and hatred that isn't the result of recent feelings. This has been boiling. This has been waiting to erupt. Verse 6, And he threw stones at David and, and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Not content with hurling curses at the king, 
Shimei adds stones. David is attacked verbally and physically. Shimei threw rage and rocks. He pelted David with stones. Verse 7, and Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. You worthless jerk, you murderer, you monster, literally, you man of Belial, you devil, get out. And that's exactly what David was trying to do. Pass through, get out. He's not planning to stay in town. He's not setting up shop. He's not even stopping for a restroom break. He's passing through. Get out of town, you worthless old man, murderer, corrupt and stupid king. Verse 13. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. He threw whatever he could get his hands on. And this went on for 10 miles. He's inflicting wounds on the king of Israel, David. David is bleeding from his head. The king had bloody feet. Now he has a bloody head. When someone hits you with a rock, it hurts. I wonder if the words hurt more than the sticks and stones. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words never hurt me. I wonder if that's true. It seems like bones can grow back together and flesh wounds can be stitched up, but it's something about words that tend to leave permanent damage. Words break hearts which can't be doctored with a splint or stitches. David has had his biological son, son turn against him. He thinks his adopted son turned against him. He's been taken advantage of by a wicked schemer, Ziba. David's at rock bottom when he encounters Shumei. Which leads us to this truth. When you are discouraged, lonely, and disoriented, don't be surprised when Satan sends one of his minions to kick you while you're down. When you are discouraged, lonely, and disoriented, don't be surprised when Satan sends one of his minions to kick you while you're down. Satan's tactic is to discourage you, to make you lose hope, to think all is lost. When the shemaze of the world come after you, remember, life can be horrible, yet God's plan still moving forward. This moment in David's life was horrible, but God's plan for his life was still moving forward. L look at verse 8. Shimei yells, The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. All the blood you shed is now coming back on your head, David. I don't think this is a reference to David shedding blood in war. I think this is an accusation against David that he killed Saul and Jonathan and Abner. That he was responsible in some way for their deaths. It's an unfounded accusation based on superficial circumstantial evidence. But this guy is convinced you shed blood in the household of Saul. 
The narrator of 2 Samuel has gone through pains to show David was not guilty of Saul's murder. David had multiple chances to kill Saul, but refused each time. Yet still, he's accused of being a blood-stained fiend of hell. David is surrounded by his bodyguards, these, uh, these elite fighting men, and their job, remember, is to protect the king. Now, what are they thinking? Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> yes! Yes, I like this son of Zeruiah. King, he curses you. He hits you with a dirt ball. Let's respond in kind. How about I decapitate him? <laughs> this mangy dog can insult you. He's useless trash. Let, let me take him out. Let me execute him on the spot. Abishai has a chip on his shoulder the size of Russia. He's always ready for a fight. This is the second time Abishai has asked David for permission to kill. Originally, he wanted to stick a sword in the chest of Saul while he slept in a cave. But David restrained him. And we're left with this penetrating question. WWDD. What would David do? Verse 10. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David... Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him to. Joab and Abishai, you sons of Zeruiah, you boneheads, leave the man alone. David once again restrains this man from violence. David did not retaliate. You see put on display the king's quiet control. He's accepted the most stinging humiliation. Allowing someone to walk alongside him, spitting angrily in his face, he bore the abuse and let the man's evil go unpunished. David saw his humiliation as part of the Lord's sovereign judgment. He thinks these curses may be divinely sanctioned. Plus, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. Compared to that, this Benjamite is small potatoes. Which leads us to glean another truth. Do you see your humiliations in light of God's sovereignty. I'm not asking if you deserve the humiliations or not. I'm asking do you see them in light of God's sovereignty? The humiliation that happened to you at your job. The humiliation in front of your friends. The humiliation in your family. The persistent show of hatred. Your public failure. The divorce. How your grown children now treat you. Your financial 
where there's really just no other word to describe it than humiliation. When you do not see your humiliation in light of God's sovereignty, your heart grows cold. But when you do, as Ambrose said, David grew hot in the pains of his wrongs. Your humiliation can make you hot for God. It can press you to Jesus Christ. They can be the wave that slams you against the rock of ages. Charles Spurgeon used to say that the secret, the secret is you must learn to kiss the wave that throws you against the rock of ages. This humiliation is painful. This humiliation is long. This humiliation is embarrassing. But it's slamming you to the rock of ages and it's making you hot for God. So kiss it. See it in God's sovereignty. This is the blessing of being cursed out. Do not decapitate him. Let him live. Here's what we have. A strong belief in the vengeance of God will free you from having to dispense vengeance yourself. A strong belief in the vengeance of God will free you from having to dispense vengeance yourself. This is not stoic, a stoic resignation on the part of David. This is Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David waited for the Lord to vindicate him. You do the same. This scene highlights the difference the grace of God can make in your reactions. When you leave vengeance in the hands of God... It is a mark of grace. This is an astonishing turning point in the story. David knew he wasn't guilty of killing Saul and Jonathan. David was innocent of that charge, but guilty of so many others. He was worse than Shimei thought he was. And he thought, maybe the Lord is speaking through this idiot. His facts are wrong, but maybe the anger toward me is legit. He has a point. I did not kill Saul, but I did kill Uriah. I think this guy may be the mouthpiece of God, preaching God's word to me. He accused me of something I didn't do, but it reminded me of something I did do. Which leads us to this truth. Don't take yourself too seriously. If people think poorly of you, do not be angry with them. You are worse than they think you to be. You can quickly get on this moral crusade that you don't deserve this treatment. You don't deserve how things have turned out in your life. Friend, you deserve hell. Anything better is grace. Only one person has been cursed and wasn't worthy of the cursing. That was Jesus Christ. The sinless accused of sin. The sinless one bore your sins in his body on the cross. David is a king with bloody feet and a bloody head, but he was also a bloody sinner and he knew it. The greater David, Jesus Christ, on the cross, had his feet bloodied by a nail. 
and his head bloodied by a crown of thorns. And he wasn't a bloody sinner. He was a bloody savior. He, like David, was taunted and spit upon. He, like David, was called a devil. Yet he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. David is a, a good king, but this whole story points to, as one of our pastors says, it points to great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. He was reviled, but remained silent. David thought his adopted son deserted him. Jesus knew his 12 adopted sons deserted him. 1,000 years after 2 Samuel 16, Jesus had these same things happen to him on the same road. Yet he was without sin. David knew he was worse than they thought him to be. Jesus knew he was better than they thought him to be. On this road, David sinned, and you did too. But Jesus walked it without sin. Then took your penalty for walking it with sin. The humiliation of David, and it is humiliating in this passage, the humiliation of David points you to the humiliation of Christ. Endured for you. Now, I, I like this section because David's consciousness of guilt excites his assurance that he will be forgiven. In the unfolding story of God, this unfolding plan of redemption, let, let me tell you what is happening here. David is both under Yahweh's election and under Yahweh's judgment. God is fulfilling his word to David times two. Fulfilling his word of judgment to David back in chapter 12 through Nathan and fulfilling his word of hope to David back in chapter 7 through the Davidic covenant. Deceiving the king, that was verses 1 through 4. Cursing the king, verses 5 through 13. Deceiving the king, that was Ziba. Cursing the king, that was Shimei. Now arriving a weary king, verse 14. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived, would you mark this word, weary, at the Jordan. They arrived weary at the Jordan. This is a 21-mile journey from Jerusalem to the Jordan River. One road, one path, not easy. David has now undergone physical and psychological stresses this entire journey. Less than 24 hours ago, he was in his White House and everything was good. Life can flip that quickly. One phone call can change your life forever. For David, he lost everything in a single day. And it's time for me to remind you, church, that God never designed for the path you tread to be easy. Some of you are going through it. You are having David-like experiences. Life isn't pleasant. And I want to walk that path with you. When a rock hits you in the head, I want to be the guy walking with you asking, do you want me to decapitate him? I will. I want to be with you when you're walking that hard road. But I also want to warn you, friend. I want to warn you. Suffering doesn't always make you better. 
Sometimes it makes you worse. Sometimes it makes you bitter, angry, negative. I've been at this for a while. I've seen people who profess faith in Christ be required to walk a hard road and hear me, they left the faith. They aren't here anymore. Suffering doesn't always make you hot for God. Sometimes it becomes an occasion for abandoning God. Dear one, nothing you experience in life will excuse your bitterness toward God, your sour attitude, or your abandonment of the word of God. Nothing you experience. Kyle, my spouse left me. My child died. I lost my job. My family is so incredibly toxic. My parents are dying. Kyle, how, how can I be sure that my hard path doesn't drive me away from God? You control that. No one controls that but you. God never designed for the path you tread to be easy. So, afflicted saint, to Christ draw near. This is what David did. And I know that because he wrote Psalm 3 while experiencing 2 Samuel 16. Psalm 3 is, is the psalm of a pursued king while at peace with God. I want to read a portion of it. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Kyle is cancer. The Lord is the lifter of your head. It's an incurable disease. The doctors have no answers. I'll live in pain forever. The Lord is the lifter of your head. Afflicted saint to Christ draw near. That is a hymn that we plan to sing later. I have a terminally ill child, afflicted saint to Christ draw near. My parents have Alzheimer's, afflicted saint to Christ draw near. My spouse is dying, afflicted saint to Christ draw near. We're going to sing the hymn, but... I want to read a portion of it. The hymn says, Afflicted saint to Christ draw near, your Savior's gracious promise here. His faithful word you can believe that as your days your strength shall be. So sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days. Your strength shall be. When called to bear your weighty cross, 
or sore affliction, pain or loss, or deep distress or poverty, still as your days your strength shall be. So sing with joy, afflicted one. I want to glean a truth from this text just for non-Christians. There's quite a few of you here. This is the case every Sunday. This is wonderful. I've always made it a practice as a pastor not to talk about you, but to speak directly to you. So that's what I want to do now. Non-Christians, what David endured by following God is a normal path for a Christian. God sent David on a path, and part of that path was unique to David. I don't deny that. However, part of his path was common for all God followers. When you follow Jesus Christ, you will be assaulted with sticks and stones, swords and guns, or curses and marginalizations. Non-Christian, do not make a profession of faith unless you are prepared to endure this. Do not follow this Christ unless you come to die. Well, well, the church down the street tells me, I don't care what they tell you. I'm telling you that every person who came to Christ in the Bible came knowing it could cost them their life and they were willing to face it. In the States, we aren't even willing to be inconvenienced to follow this Christ. Much less die for him. People who remain faithful to God despite the risk, that is a New Testament Christian. And and your sufferings, Christian, your, your sufferings confirm God's claims rather than undermine them. David leaving Jerusalem, verses 1 through 14, now Absalom entering Jerusalem. This section is much shorter. Don't worry. I'm not going to give this movement equal uh, time. You just breathe that sigh of relief right now. The scene changes. Absalom is installing himself as king in Jerusalem. We don't see David anymore in this chapter. David is gone. The camera has panned to a different scene. It was was following David while leaving Jerusalem. Now it's panning back to Jerusalem. Verse 15. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. Long live the king. Church, you're about to witness one of the most successful acts of spy work recorded in Israel's history. Last week, you remember, David sent Hushai back to Jerusalem as a mole, a spy. He was willing to go undercover for David. What a friend we have in Hushai. (laughs) Hushai pretends to be a loyal follower of Absalom. Long live the king. This is an oath, a standard royal greeting, a common response when someone encounters a king and a monarchy. Verse 17. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Now, Absalom is rightfully suspicious. He he reveals his misgivings with a double question. Why are you defecting? You're David's friend. My, My father David, you're his friend. Absalom is investigating, probing, weighing the depths of this man's loyalty. Is your loyalty to your friend? Absalom calls David the the friend. 
Now, this is significant. This is a subtle stripping of David's kingly status. Woodhouse, that Australian theologian, pulled out that David could say, Hushai is my friend, but Hushai could not say David is my friend. The relationship is not symmetrical. King David looks at Hushai and calls him friend. Hushai looks at King David and calls him king. Subtle stripping. Verse 18. And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be. And with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. In other words, I'm burning the bridges behind me. No turning back. I want to be with the person that God has chosen, that, that the people have chosen. My allegiance lies with you. And Absalom falls for it. The deception is brilliant. Hushai is in. He's in their inner circle of advisors. It's a small group, only two people, Ahithophel and Hushai. Absalom needs some counsel as Israel's new king, some advising. And Now, which one will he ask? Will he ask Hushai or Ahithophel? Well, on this issue, Hushai is left out and Ahithophel will be asked. Verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Absalom wants to know what to do now that he's in Jerusalem. Should I put up my picture in the White House? Should I give a speech from the White House lawn? Should I pardon a turkey for Thanksgiving? What is it that presidents do? What is my next step as king? Absalom's gained control of the royal citadel in an impressive bloodless coup. I've never seen anything like it. But now what? Deceiving the king, Hushai did that. Advising the king, Ahithophel does that. And he does it in verse 21. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. David left ten concubines to keep the house when he left Jerusalem. Ahithophel tells Absalom, if you want to publicize your claim to the throne, you need to go into your father's concubines. You will be invading your father's most intimate private world. Everyone will hear that you openly disgraced your father. And, and the public opinion, the, the public perception would be that you are now in the place of your father. And as I researched this... That, there was a standing tradition in the east of taking a harem of a previous monarch, stealing his kingdom and his concubines. If a king couldn't protect his concubines, how could he protect his nation? So it's basically over once this event takes place. Seizing the harem is equivalent to seizing the kingdom. Possessing the harem was the title, the key to the throne. Verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. They've staged this X-rated scene atop the palace. The text says every person in Israel watched. It happened in the sight of all Israel. This does not mean that the streets were filled with every resident and they had their perverted binoculars out. All Israel should not be taken literally. 
This wasn't an open act with a bed on the roof. He, he pitched a tent and everyone knew what was going on in the tent. By all Israel, it means this. It became public knowledge. Ironically, this event took place on the White House roof. The king's palace rooftop. The same roof where David committed his sin with Bathsheba. And so was fulfilled Nathan's prophecy. I'll give your wives to another king. What you did in the dark with Bathsheba, he will do in the light with your wives. This reprehensible act fulfills Nathan's prophecy. Interestingly, this chapter started on the summit and ends on the roof. Two high points sandwich the content of this chapter. We've done a lot of gleaning throughout this exposition. Let's glean three final truths. When you seek advice, make sure your advisor does not counsel you away from the clear instruction of Scripture. When you seek advice, make sure your advisor does not counsel you away from the clear instruction of Scripture. This taking of the harem may have been a common practice in the East, but it was clearly forbidden in the Torah. There are a lot of Ahithophels around waiting to give you advice that isn't biblical. Things like, well, if you're going to get ahead at your job, you're going to have to be a Shumai. Flatter people, play the game. Ahithophel say, you deserve a night out. Cut loose, drink a bit. You deserve to be happy. Or... Ahithophel will say, follow your heart. And then your pastor say, your heart is desperately wicked. Follow the Bible. Ahithophel would say, if you want to get his attention, you really need to dress a certain way. Church, when you seek advice, make sure your advisor does not counsel you away from the clear instruction of Scripture. Another truth. When you, like Absalom, rebel against God's chosen one, it will not end well for you. I want to say this with compassion and love. When you, like Absalom, rebel against God's chosen one, it will not end well for you. This chapter is filled with hostility expressed toward God's anointed. David leaving Jerusalem is very much God's king leaving Jerusalem. Absalom entering Jerusalem is very much Satan's king entering Jerusalem. David isn't just a random Near Eastern king. He's Yahweh's chosen one. Hence, to rebel against David as king is to rebel against Yahweh as God. Ralph Davis said Absalom had no more right to forsake David than a true disciple does to forsake David's son. David must not only be viewed as an individual, but in terms of his office. How we respond to the king matters. When you refuse to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you, like Absalom, are saying, I want to sit on the throne. Rebellion against God's Messiah is painful and destructive, but such rebellion 
will not last. So you non-Christians, I plead with you, if you look at the evidence, if you look at the evidence, you will abandon your hostility toward Christ. Now, I told you at the beginning, one of the questions I always ask is, what does this text teach about God? For the last two weeks, we covered in 2 Samuel a political conspiracy, which led me to give you this truth. Do political conspiracies scare you? Do Absaloms in high places frighten you? We need not be afraid of conspiracies in high places. Whether in Jerusalem, Moscow, Washington, Beijing, or closer to home. Psalm 2.4 gives us instructions. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God is laughing while Absalom rebels against him. He's laughing while rulers attempt to thwart his plans. Find comfort in God laughing through 2 Samuel 16. And find comfort in God laughing through 2022. Let's stand together. Father, help us to build our lives on your word. We are so guilty of hearing the word but not building our lives on it. So dear Lord, please give us the ability and the discipline to build our lives on your word. Church, let's sing together.